It's time for the documentary podcast. Welcome to episode 16. I'm Kathy Kalaszewski. I am Steve Byrne. So today we are going to be talking Doc NYC. Steve headed to New York uh, this past week and spent uh, a few days checking out some of the films that were screening there. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what Steve experienced there. And then in addition, uh, Steve got to talk to some directors of some films that were screening there. So Steve, talk a little bit about general impressions of Doc NYC. Was it your first time? Uh, if not, you know, what, what do you like about it? And if it was, what, what did you uh, think of it uh, in your first experience? Yeah, it was my first time there. Um, was not my first time at New York, but my first time at that festival. And um, I enjoyed it a lot. I wasn't there for the full duration, um, about five days. I was there on the Sunday to the closing Thursday. Um, managed to see, I think, I think it was 13 movies, plus spent a good chunk Dang, of time. Dang, that's... Yeah, <laughs> yeah but um, if you think that's good, I also made it to probably about 10 of their Doc NYC Pro conferences. You know, they basically all day um, during the second week have pretty much, you know, panel discussions, um, brief screenings of trailers and conversations about films. So basically it's really geared towards the pro, more so the pro filmmaker than like somebody involved with a podcast or a film festival. But um, nonetheless, that was that stuff was really enlightening. Um, you know, as far as the geography of the festival itself, it's, you know, it's in the Chelsea neighborhood, which is an awesome place to be walking around if you wanted to check out, you know, shopping, drinks, food. And, you know, essentially the, the, there's three key theaters, the, the SVA, the IFC Center, and then Bowtie Chelsea Cinemas, where there are several, um, several rooms that screen at that theater. And the two of the three are easy walking distance. The third one is a little bit of a long hike, but if it's a nice New York fall day, which happened to be the way it was while I was there, um, not a bad walk whatsoever. So um, I enjoyed the geography of the festival, was able to get into most of the movies I wanted to, um, either by buying or, you know, in some, a couple cases, press connections. But um, it's a great event. I mean, you know, I was able to pack up my days basically from 10 a.m. until, you know, the last screenings were, I think, at 9.45. So I think of the four days I was there, I was pretty much doing something from, you know, 10 a.m. to midnight. So you basically days. had popcorn for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Is that what you're trying to tell I, me? I, the My employer will get a couple of expense lunches that were popcorn and an iced tea. Yes. Sweet. Okay. So what did you see when you were there that you liked and didn't like and whatever? Yeah, yeah sure. I don't want to run through every movie, but a couple that's that stuck out at me. One I don't think is going to really be breaking tons of news to anyone who's really um, keyed in on the doc world. Probably the thing I liked the most w was Cartel Land, which is this uh, this documentation, crazy, crazy, crazy scene um, in Mexico, border wars, drug cartel wars, cooking of meth, and uh, filmmaker just slash cinematographer just gets a level of access to the violence and the craziness and the people who are fighting against it that it just it tells the story in a way in a visceral way that I've never seen you know despite having I actually had a friend who used a very good friend who used to be a border agent and so I heard some of his stories before but this movie puts you in the middle of it like like nothing else um, that was the that was my favorite thing um, if you want me to throw out a couple other movies really fast I do. Uh, um, how about um, lighten up the mood um, to a degree something called can we take a joke 
which I believe was getting its world premiere there. Obviously, Cartel Land had been playing around for a bit this year. Can We Take a Joke was essentially looking at um, concerns among, mainly among stand-up comics that the um, proliferation of social media and to also a degree the proliferation of what they view as political correctness, how it makes it difficult to, to um, push boundaries the way stand-up comedy, particularly going back to the legacy of people like Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor, um, it makes it very difficult to do that anymore because the second you say something that um, crosses a little bit of a line, you're on instant flambe. The Amy Schumer effect kind of thing? Yeah, um, I think Amy Schumer happened after this film was made, but that's exactly the kind of thing they were talking about you know they did talk about um what's his name that got the aflac duck mm-hmm. um gilbert Gottfried, um and him being fired for his joke that he made about the i believe it was about the uh i'm blanking here it's the i'm gonna start the, the big wave that crashed oh that crashed the tsunami <laughs> yeah the tsunami yes all right. All right so just start i'll just start there yeah. um you know gilbert Gottfried, you know who of course was fired from his job as the aflac duck um after he made some jokes about um the deadly tsunamis so um i thought it was a very com- made a very compelling argument definitely very thought-provoking it was cool to see you know in the q a it got pretty pointed between some of the members of the audience and the director and producer who didn't necessarily agree and we were walking out of the theater and people were still like really going at each other over some of the points brought up in this movie so you know that's one of the reasons documentaries exist as far as i'm concerned is to provoke thought and to provoke conversation and that one did it in a very very fun way of course as you can imagine when you're talking to an endless stream of stand-up comedians there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of very good laughs in there as well gilbert Gottfried is actually about as funny as i've ever seen him And I will throw out one other one that I liked quite a bit. Um, This one has played around a little bit, but I don't think a lot, um, called Syl Johnson, Any Any Way the Wind Blows. And it is basically the story of, you know, a late 60s, early 70s um, R&B slash soul singer who kind of was a contemporary of Al Green's, um, who in beginning in the mid to late 80s became a favorite of hip hop samplers. And, um, you know, has a very interesting life, ends up going on to uh, sue quite a few people who have been who've been raiding his record crate, so to speak. And uh, basically, it's a it's a music history lesson. It's a story that talks about how music, you know, branches across multiple generations, I guess I would say, in ways that you wouldn't expect. And then also he's just kind of Syl Johnson himself is kind of this into, you know, very indelible, over-the-top, um, interesting type dude. So you get to, it's a character study as well. Um, and so there's three that there's three that I would recommend. So uh, in this episode of the documentary podcast, uh, you were able to talk to some directors from, um, that were screening at Doc NYC. Was there anything that kind of tied some of those films together? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do three interviews here. And in all three cases, I'm not necessarily arguing that this is a thematic that branches across all of DACA NYC. You know, there's over 100 films. Obviously, I didn't see close to them all. But one that jumped out at me was um, some directors who were wrestling with very either difficult or in some cases difficult, in some cases just hard to get your arms around characters. Um, And so these character studies... That, that's the thematic I want to draw out as I, t- as I talk to them. And um, I will mention three specific films, though I do think the Syl Johnson one fits that category as well. 
One is the, called The Legend of Sweet Pea. Um, director Benjamin May actually takes a look at the career of a legendary um, New York City basketball player who um, has a very troubled life, ends up getting recruited to UNLV um, for a scholarship, but um, gets busted in a crack house before he even takes his first practice. Um, and so this is a story, and you know I don't want to go all the way into everything that happens in it, but um, Benjamin has a, does a very intriguing job of pulling together this guy's life story, but um, there are some impediments along the way. So there, there's one. Two, um, a movie called The Autobiography of Michelle Marin. This is a woman who uh, was a somewhat of a minor beauty queen, actually briefly had a porn career and did some acting and um, then had a major, major kind of mental breakdown. And she re reached out to director Michael Negroponte and said, I think there is a movie in my life story. And uh, they basically engaged with each other for an extended period of time. And he decided to give her a camera. And so much of this movie, I don't know if, uh, what percentage I would put at it, maybe 50% of it is shot, um, is shot by her. And then he pieces together her life story and how her very difficult family background kind of led her down this path of despair. And then, um, again, I'm maybe not going to say exactly where the movie ends up. But again, um, seeing how he dealt with this personality, which she is, you know, she is mentally ill. And that's something she admitted both in the after talk and throughout the movie. She's she's tough to deal with. And you could tell there was even at the after talk a little bit of tension still remaining between them. Last, um, a movie called Newman, which I would say other than Cartel Land was probably my favorite thing that I saw. Um, it is about a inventor, um, a very hard-nosed inventor who in the early 70s comes up with what essentially he believes is a perpetual motion machine, which for lack of a better term means that it puts out more energy than it takes in. This is would, uh, would tend, as the movie argues, to defy physics. And um, this guy goes up against uh, both big business and the US Patent Office in trying to prove his uh, machine works. And the way the first time director John Fox deals with this story and deals with him, um, again, don't want to give too much away, but um, it's an amazing story kind of about a man versus the man or man versus machine, but also this really, really super intense character and how he goes across on the screen. Well, very cool. Well, let's get right to the interviews. We are pleased to welcome to the documentary podcast Benjamin May, the director of The Legend of Sweet Pea, which just received its world premiere at Doc NYC. The Legend of Sweet Pea is the story of the rise, fall, rise, and fall of Lloyd Daniels, one of the most revered plays ever on New York's stabled playground basketball scene. So talented, he became the only player ever to reach the NBA without graduating from high school. But a troubled background, including substance abuse issues, prevent him from reaching his true greatness. Um, Benjamin, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about your film. Uh, Steve, thanks for having me. So you, if I am correct, are a first-time director. What made you realize there was a movie here and that you would be the one who could, uh, who could pull it off? Well, you know... I had always been a uh, a basketball fan, and also and also always been a pretty big film fan. And um, with those things combined, you know, I was always you know aware of the Lloyd Daniels story when I was 
you know, in high school and college. And, you know, my wife and I were watching a bunch of films, you know, uh, and I always remarked to her that I couldn't believe how no one had ever done a film on uh, Lloyd Sweet B. Daniels because, you know, with all the sports documentaries coming out, his story was the most dramatic, you know. And finally, after talking about it, uh, you know, for several years, my life was like, you should do the film. You should make that movie. And, you know, it was really through some of her connections in New York that we hooked up with some, you know, really good other filmmakers. And, um, you know, over the course of the last three years, we were able to, you know, make it happen. And it was really exciting to get it done. Lloyd on film seems like a guy who is, in a lot of ways, a really nice human being who really wants to make people happy. But at times, he also seems like a personality that would be uh, pretty difficult to lasso. What was it like uh, dealing with him on like a one-on-one basis as you were as you were making a movie? You know, uh, that's a great question because Lloyd, throughout his life, um, has been uh, sort of utilized or taken advantage of for his basketball skills and um from where he came from and not having a whole lot of uh direction he had to learn to be suspicious of people who came up to him uh you know wanting to do something you know wanting something from him and so you know when I came up to him wanting to do this story he was interested but we really had to establish some trust that um, you know, we were going to do it right and that we weren't there to exploit him or just kind of take something from him. And so, you know, there are ways that, um, you know, he would sort of, you know, utilize, you know, utilize to check our commitment to the film and some of those ways we show in the film with some of those voicemails. But, you know, overall it was just about establishing trust with Lloyd. And once we, once we were able to do that, you know, he really opened up as a person and, um, you know, he is real, a very beautiful person, you know, beneath that sort of tough street exterior. And it was a real privilege to, you know, uh, bring that to the, you know, bring that to the documentary and bring it to the film. Uh, you mentioned your voicemails. Those are a motif that kind of runs throughout Ubi, him calling you. Um, sometimes he's in a good mood, like, hey, let's, uh, let's can't wait to meet, see ya, can't wait to meet up. And other times it seems like he's growing skeptical of you. What was uh, the thinking behind using those through, throughout the movie? Did you feel like they were really revealing of him? Yeah, you know, when we first started, when I first started out making this film, uh, we wanted to kind of do a typical story arc of, you know, as you alluded to in the intro, the you know, the, the rise, the fall, the rise, and the fall, and um, just kind of use that as a template for the film. But then once we got to know Lloyd. Um, I realize he's much more complex, interesting uh, human being, and the film really became more about him. Um, and in order to really do justice to who he is as a person and, and how interesting and complex he is, we really had to include all sides of the story, including you know that really more personal side that reveals not only how he interacts with people, some people, but how he also battles some of the substance abuse issues that he has. So. I think it was really based out of, uh, you know, trying to tell the most honest story possible about a really remarkable human being who had an amazing life. How difficult was it to deal with some of his biggest failures? One thing that I I recall from the film, like when you um, go back to visit the site 
which was maybe his, his biggest disaster. He had been recruited to be a basketball player at UNLV, which was, you know, maybe the biggest program going at that time. And uh, before he ever even suits up for a game, he's busted at a crack house. And you take him back literally to the site of that house, and it's obviously very difficult for him. Um, how did you approach the idea of revisiting that, that particular spot and that particular moment in his life? With any film, there's a certain amount of luck involved, and we ended up going over to that part of Las Vegas after uh, another interviewee uh, had canceled that morning. And so it was almost by happenstance that we were like, all right, we have the whole crew. All right, well, you know, let's go over to North Las Vegas where that happened. And, um, it was really unexpected what happened in front of that house because, you know, if you know Lloyd as well as we did at that time, you know, we were a couple of years into knowing him. Um, he never expresses regret about anything. Uh, everything is always okay. He's going to be fine. And a certain amount that amount of that is a defense mechanism, um, you know, that we all, that we all have, um, sort of rationalizing the past, but it was clear that once we were in that neighborhood and once we got to that house that, you know, that really did affect him. And, um, thankfully, at that point, he was comfortable with us uh, enough as a crew that he was able to open up and really come to terms with this path, and he felt comfortable showing uh, showing the, a more vulnerable side of himself. How um, easy or difficult was it to get other people to talk to about him? Um, you know, I, people like David Robinson, who was one of his teammates in the NBA, really give a lot of enlightening, um, I think, kind of testament to what his character was like and what his basketball talent was like. Did you have people, were most people willing to cooperate with you that you wanted to talk to? Absolutely. Um, you know, people, you know, Lloyd, whoever's life Lloyd, you know, or whoever, you know, you know, Lloyd is a ton, Lloyd is notorious. He knows tons and tons of people and any person who's a part of his life is really affected by him because he's such a, sort of a powerful personality and so everybody that we talked to was was very interested in doing an interview because everyone had so much to say you know both about him as a person about his, his story about some of the you know the tragic failure you know sort of the epic qualities of who he is as a person and his story just really made people want to talk about it and as you alluded to david robinson you know, for example, doesn't do a whole lot of interviews, but, you know, sat down with us for an hour and he's such, you know, the nicest guy in the world. And, you know, John Lucas, of course, um, we were very lucky to sit with him for an hour at his house. Also, uh, a very, very nice guy. And so I think we, we were able to get to all the really important people in Lloyd's life. Uh, but yeah, everyone is, was very open and willing to you know, share anecdotes. Everyone wants to talk about Lloyd. So yeah, it was great. So you said, obviously, you brought a lot of basketball interest to this. How good do you think he could have been or would have been? You know, he had a decent NBA career. People knew who he was. Anybody who makes it to the NBA and lasts for a little while is obviously great. But I think everyone in the film thinks take away some of his issues and he may be up there in the pantheon with your what your Jordans, your Magics, your Larry Birds. What's your, what's your estimation of that? I think there's no question that he would have been up there with the great ones. Um, you know, it's not the reality of the situation, but if he would have had the discipline as, you know, the same discipline as a Michael Jordan or a LeBron James and the direction, you know, when Lloyd was 16 or 17 years old and went through the college ranks and went to the NBA and, you know, did things sort of 
the correct way. There's no question he could have been one of the great ones, you know, because he, him, like all the great ones, you know, he was unique in his skills. And uh, it was interesting when he got to the NBA, you could see flashes of those things. There was just something, even in the NBA, there was something that set him apart from the ordinary NBA basketball players when he was playing. There was a certain smoothness, a certain sort of intuition about the ebb and flow of the game, um, you know, a, a court vision, a generosity, a, um, you know, he he was just very, very graceful. And uh, so to see that kind of manifested in the NBA later, albeit, you know, 60 to 70% of what he once was, was really fascinating. And that's what kind of drew me to the story in the first place. Yeah, I'm, forgive me because I'm forgetting who said it, but I do remember the quote. Somebody said he had an almost mystical sense of what to do with the basketball, and uh, that struck me in, in, in watching some of the clips you had. Yeah, that was the thing that made him special. That was what the people who saw him play in his prime testified as the thing that made him a prodigy and made him a savant, and that's what was fascinating to me. And that was the person who said that was Tom Kinchalski, who is – one of the preeminent high school scouts in the nation, you know, and he's been around the game for 50 years. And, you know, he, he just get he just got like sort of misty eyed when he would talk about, you know, seeing Lloyd in his prime. So that's, you know, so that's what made him a legend. And that's what was really fascinating about seeing him in the NBA, you know, years after he was shot, because it was almost like seeing an ex, you know, Paul Bunyan manifested in front of you on TV. And so everyone was quite shocked about it, you know, and then they were, you know, it was like, and he had this charisma. And so when he was in the NBA, everyone, all eyes were kind of always on him because he had such a, you know, such a reputation. So it was really a fascinating thing. And then, you know, to actually be able to do a documentary about, you know, 20 years later was really sort of uh, uh, pretty bizarre, but uh, I feel very thankful. So back to them a little bit. So what was it like um, when Lloyd first saw it? I saw the second screening at Doc NYC and, he came afterwards and he seemed like you guys were on good terms, but obviously he doesn't always look great in this movie. What was the, what's it been like dealing with him since the film has come out? He, uh, you know, he really uh, loves the film deeply. I think he feels like it's an honest portrait. Um, and he said that to me multiple times. And um, I think it, uh, as you mentioned, you know, I think it was, very emotional for him sitting through both screenings. You know, he actually elected to watch the film for the first time at the premiere with everybody else. Um, so uh, that kind of shows what, you know, sort of <laughs> what sort of, what sort of guy he is, you know, um, but it was very emotional, but he loved him. He's, he's called me several times and told me how much he uh, appreciates how the film was made and how he's portrayed and how honest it is. That had to be intense for you to be at the world premiere knowing the subject was in the house and knowing that he hadn't seen it yet and what's going to happen when the lights come up. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. I mean, you know, we had tried to arrange a couple of screenings for him before, but it, it, you know, it fell through and, um, you know, I talked him through, I made sure I talked him through some of the more um, revealing segments of the film so that he wasn't completely blindsided but yeah it was it was pretty intense having him sit there with, in the audience with everyone else seeing it for the first time but it was really yeah, it was super exciting 
All right, so I'll ask one last question. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of documentary film fans and lots of basketball fans who are going to want to know how are they going to be able to see this film. Do you have any sense of its of its path uh, now that now that it's made its premiere? Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're trying to figure out the best distribution to go with at this point. Uh, but just follow us on Twitter at, at SweetPFilm or thelegendofsweetpea.com or like us on Facebook. For updates, we'll be this film will be you know probably doing a festival circuit in the spring, but coming out in uh, you know mid 2016. So just keep an eye out, keep an eye out for, out for us on social media and to keep you know keep up with updates. And but the film will be out in 2016, mid 2016. Excellent. So I will thank Benjamin May very much for spending some time with us. Um, keep an eye out for the Legend of Sweet Pea. And um, Benjamin, thanks again for your time. Oh, thank you, Steve. I really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. We would like to welcome to the documentary podcast today, Michelle Negroponte, who is the co-director of an autobiography of Michelle Marin, which just received its U.S. premiere at Doc NYC. Um, a veteran of more than 30 years in the documentary space um, as a director, producer, cinematographer, Negroponte is known for films like Jupiter's Wife and I'm Dangerous with Love. Um, an autobiography of Michelle Marin um, is an almost painfully intimate portrait of the tighter character of former escort, go-go dancer, beauty queen. She is struggling with depression, numerous mental issues, and a haunted family past she can't really shake. But she comes to think that a film about her life could be part of her salvation. And that is a good time to bring Michelle into the conversation and uh, welcome for being here and ask him if he could tell us a little bit about how he came to meet Michelle and decide that there was indeed a film in her life. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on the show. Um, I think it was in about 2008, in other words, a long time ago, that I received an email from Michelle Marin, and uh, she said that she had seen a film of mine, Jupiter's Wife, 80 times, and thought that she might, that I might find her an interesting subject for a film project. So she initiated the project with that email. Um, she also told me a number of other things about her own life, and uh, which included, you know, a an an growing up in an abusive home, uh, years in the sex industry, had a long history of mental illness. And uh, I was finishing a, a film at the time called I'm Dangerous with Love and very, very focused and concentrated on the post-production when I first um, spoke with Michelle Marin. And what eventually happened is that she proposed that I teach her how to use a video video camera and that she would begin filming the project on her own. Um, for the next couple of months, she would stop by my cutting room every once in a while and show me some of the material that she had shot with this little camcorder. And I was really floored by the material. A lot of it was monologues to camera about her you know, like her own personal stories. Um, there were vignettes of 
her in her apartment, in her small apartment with her cat, Pinky. Um, and there were even a couple of times where she took the camera on the tripod and attached it to a shopping cart and did tracking shots around her apartment complex and outside. In any case, you know, I found the way she was photographing herself and her kind of a very immediate uh, rapport with the camera was was uncanny. And I thought the material was was really powerful. And in effect, that's how our collaboration began. I just found her own material, which ultimately provided uh, almost the first third of the film is exclusively her material. Um, and that really set the, the tone and the, the groundwork for a collaboration that then continued for almost another five or six years. Before we talk a little bit more about that film, I wanted to go about something you said about the impetus for it. And she referenced she had seen Jupiter's Wife 80 times. Could you talk just a little bit about that movie and why you think um, it has such a, there's, there's kind of an obvious connection between the two, but why you think it would have resonated with somebody like Michelle? That's a, that's a good question. Um, and I, I, she has talked to me about it on a number of occasions. I mean, Jupiter's Wife is about a woman I met in Central Park in the late 1980s. And uh, Maggie had been living in Central Park for a couple of years. She had four or five dogs when I first met her. And I think something on the order of an 80 or 90 pound backpack uh, that she carried around the park. And uh, she was, you know, extraordinary, uh, eccentric, and she spoke about her own life in a very, uh, with lots of references to Greek mythology. And the film really is about trying to decipher the mythology and get to the truth. It's like almost a detective novel, trying to figure out who this woman Maggie really is. I think that Michelle Marin found Jupiter's wife a very, very empathetic portrait of someone with a mental illness. And it was the empathy and the kind of non-judgmental quality of the film that really, uh, I think, really struck her. And she clearly liked it a great deal. You know, you referenced the the striking um, imagery that Michelle was able to get for you when you gave first gave her that video camera. Was there anything else beyond you know kind of the cinematic quality of of her confessions that led you to think you know what this is somebody I want to spend the next several years of my life interacting with? It, it, it would seem clear to me from that first footage that you probably wouldn't have thought, okay, this is going to be an easy ride that I'm going to you know. Oh, this is going to be an easy ride for the next couple of years. You would probably go to yourself, this is probably going to be difficult, but you still wanted to forge forward. And if I'm, if I'm incorrect there, you can correct me, but I just wanted to ask. No, John, I, no, no, you, no, you are correct. And, uh, and well, it was more than just the, the cinematic uh, qualities of, of the video that she was shooting on her own. It was her stories and her, theatricality, and also her willingness to really um, look at her own inner pain and her own demons. Uh, 
by the way, I mean, I think I should mention that when I start a project like this, I have no idea where I'm going and where it may end up and whether the film was going to take, you know, two years, three years, five years. Again, I had absolutely no idea. Um, and I prefer it that way. I mean, I think that good documentaries, you know, are a little bit like adventures. You never quite know what's going to unfold. It's, I mean, documentary filmmaking is an improvisational art form, and there is something about um, the suspense or the, uh, you know, I think it's the suspense that makes these films unique. Um, I think I recognized that it was going to be a long and difficult ride, and uh, and there were a number of times in the five or six years that we worked on the film together that I didn't think we would ever be able to really finish it. It was it was that difficult. It was difficult for me to sort of live with this material for so long in the cutting room, day in, day out. Um, it was, some of it is very, very tough and visceral. Um, and then it was also obviously very, very hard for Michelle Marin because it really became a form of encounter therapy and, you know, to sort of look at her own life and try to, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, to, to try to unravel her own uh, you know, inner pain and, and, and also, frankly, the childhood trauma that she'd experienced on such an intense level was very difficult for her. So the first third of the film, a lot of it is stuff that she shot. What was your process or thought pattern as far as starting to take it into a second and third act where you are integrating both things that you shot yourself and then in the third act, you actually kind of become a little bit of a player in the film as well? Right. Well, you know, there was a time actually that I wondered if the entire film might be made from... Michelle Marin's video material. Again, I didn't know. Uh, I think there came a point where uh, it really has to do with uh, some very specific things that happened in the film that we kind of switched gears. And Michelle Marin wanted to go back you know, to her childhood home, or homes, I should say, and almost extend the exposure therapy that she did in fact uh, she did something called EMDR at one point to deal with flashbacks and that is in the film but then to sort of extend that kind of therapy we actually went back to uh, where she grew up and we also Michelle Marin reconnected with high school friends and so the second part of the film becomes much more like a more conventional documentary where I'm actually shooting and she's in front of the camera, she's the subject. Um, and so there's that transition from the first to the second act. I mean, the third act of the film is uh, different than the first two in that I become more of a player in the film. And at one point, I actually even step around from behind the camera and uh, make an appearance. And I actually start you know, there's even a couple of lines of, of narration that I use near the end of the film. So the film does have sort of three separate sections, and they're kind of stylistically uh, 
different from one another, but I think that it's, again, the narrative that almost compelled these stylistic uh, uh, shifts in the film, and I think they're attempting to uh, capture, you know, I, I believe that part. <laughs> Let's keep going. Yeah, one thing that really struck me about it, though, Michelle Marin is is older. I may say older. You know, I'm guessing she's somewhere in her 50s, though I don't know exactly what it is. It, the film very much has a, a now feel because some of it seems very social media. You know, she's so confessional. It's so kind of like I'm going to be out in front with every problem I have and addressing a camera. It seems like something you could see. Some of it seems like something you could see on YouTube or Periscope or in a Snapchat. Um, did that ever strike you that, like, here's somebody who grew up in a different era but very much fit an era, the social media era that we live in now? Right. Well, I, I, I think you're absolutely correct. And I did actually at one point refer to the project that Michelle Marin and I were working on together as a existential selfie. And I thought that was actually sort of a – a witty way of looking at the film, or at least parts of the film, and she didn't really like that at all. She thought it was demeaning. Um, I did mention that I wanted to stress the word existential um, uh, alongside the word uh, selfish. Uh, but I think you're right that that there is something about the world we are living in uh, right now, and. Uh, and selfies, and YouTube, and Instagram, and Facebook. Um, there is a kind of narcissistic impulse these days that uh, feels a little strange for me. I mean, I'm, I'm older. This is not my, my generation. Uh, but um, I think, you know, I, I read that there were one trillion photographs taken in the year 2014. It's a staggering number. And Obviously, a lot of that is simply because of iPhones and smartphones and people photographing themselves. Um, I think that this is obviously, this film is on a different level. I mean, it might use some techniques that people uh, feel are you know, highly recognizable. The, you know, the idea of a confessional, of looking at a camera and, you know, doing these sort of direct monologues to camera that um, have this sort of wonderful theatrical flair. Um, but I think that this, you know, this is a, a very serious attempt by Michelle Marin to, um, to unravel kind of her inner demons and to be able to live again. And uh, and that's very much what the film is about. Indeed. So what was it like when she saw the final cut? I mean, obviously she had a tremendous involvement in the film, both helping you shoot it and helping you co-direct it, but she doesn't always come off the best. Did, was, she, was she happy with the way it looked and the way it played um, once it was out there? Well, you know, again, this was a long, complicated process, and she saw scenes and sections of the film um, as they were being edited. You know, by the way, I actually start editing, I started editing the film from almost day one. I shoot and edit as I go along. This is not the first time I've done that. I've actually done that for just about the last three or four films I've made. So I have kind of an unusual working um, 
uh, process. But so I showed her material as the film evolved. So it wasn't like, you know, she had never seen anything. She'd seen the film many times as it progressed and became more and more complete. There was a point where we had disagreements about what scenes should stay, what scenes should go. Um, and some of them were very intense disagreements. Um, I mean, collaborations are difficult. Um, I think some of them, if not many of them, end badly. Um, you know, this one was as intense as they get. We we did have disagreements and 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 uh, uh, that were, you know, that were painfully difficult for both of us. Um, but, you know, we finished the film, and I think that's a remarkable accomplishment, um, especially for Michelle Merritt. I mean, it, uh, this, was, this was not easy for her. And I think it, every time I thought I was going to throw in the towel and give up on this film, and there were several, I mean, it was her resilience and her persistence that um, kept us going. So this was a very important for important project for her to to be involved with, and she's unequivocal about that. So I'll ask you one question, last question before I let you go. Can I'm sure a lot of people are going to be interested to see this film. It's kind of just at the outset of getting out there. Can you give us a little bit of sense of what you hope its path will be uh, moving forward? Well. You know, it's a little early to tell, but I think already because of Doc NYC and a festival called Rendezvous with Madness that we did in Toronto, which is one of the, I think it is the largest, oldest mental health film festival in the world. Um, there are a number of things that have already um, begun to take form, and it's too early to say exactly how this film is going to get distributed, but I have a feeling it's going to get... Um, a wide distribution and I think that's great because it's not an easy film um, it is as intense and gritty as a documentary can be um, but I think people recognize that it's important it's important for mental health professionals it's important for um, a number of people to see you know the you know the, the long term effects of childhood trauma on on a, on on a person and how the struggle that Michelle Marin has endured over decades, you know, to to put herself back together again and to have a life. And I think this film project contributed in significant ways to making that happen for her. And that's heartening. It's um, quite it's quite something to to witness. Absolutely. It's an extremely compelling film. We will help our listeners keep track of when it finally hits the, hits the marketplace. And I will thank Michelle Negroponte for spending some time with us here on the Documentary Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. We would like to uh, welcome to the Documentary Podcast today, John Fox. He is the director of a new film called Newman, which uh, had its premiere a little earlier this year at the Hampton International Film Festival and just was very well received at Doc NYC, where it received the Special Mention Award. Um, John Fox is a first-time director, and Newman is the fascinating tale of a maverick, self-taught inventor from Mississippi named John Newman 
who appears to have created a perpetual motion engine, defying laws of physics, meaning it outputs more energy than it takes in. But Newman butts heads with the scientific establishment and the U.S. Patent Office. The film tells the story of his creation, but also this unforgettable character, Newman. Um, John, we want to thank you very much for your time and uh, spending a little documentary podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Steve. I'm glad to be here. You know, as I as I listen to you do the description of the film, um, it's about a lot, and uh, you know, we we worked extremely hard to to make a condensed, concise version of it that was sort of a really fun ride, because it's about this incredible technology that isn't supposed to exist but seems to. Um, it's about this really enigmatic character, this backwoods, self-taught uh, Mississippi inventor. Um, and it's about this David and Goliath fight that it looks like he's going to win for a certain amount of time against the government. And so to roll all those up it's, uh, and try to encapsulate it, it's quite a lengthy description. I think we did a good job of it. And, um, but uh, it, it was a once-in-a-lifetime story that you stumble on. And it, it certainly kept my attention for over a decade as I, as I got to know Joe Newman and uh, research the film. Yeah. So did I, you know, I'm just going to go backwards here. I, did I say John Newman? Uh, you did say it. John Newman, yeah. Do you mind if I start over? Because that is absolutely a bad mistake. I'm with um, you. I, I wasn't going to interrupt, but I had the thought. Go for it. Okay. All right. I'm very sorry about that. No, um, no I do. John John Newman is an author I, I've read frequently, so I think that's probably where it came from. But um, right. Steve, you've right. done this a lot more than me. You don't owe me any apologies. Uh, okay. All right. Let's go. Um, I'm going to just... Okay. All right, here we go. Sorry about that, and one, two, three. We would love to welcome to the documentary podcast, John Fox. He is the director of a new film called Newman, which recently received its premiere at the Hampton International Film Festival and also did very well at Doc NYC in November where it received a special mention award. Newman is the fascinating tale of a maverick self-taught inventor from Mississippi named Joe Newman, who appears to have created a perpetual motion engine, defying the laws of physics by outputting more energy than it takes in. But Joe Newman butts head with the scientific establishment and the U.S. Patent Office. The film tells his story and the creation of this thing, but also really provides an unforgettable kind of character portrait. So we very much want to thank John Fox for spending a little bit of time with us on the documentary podcast. Uh, Good to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, the Joe Newman story, uh, when I stumbled on it over a decade ago, um, it was unlike anything I'd ever uh, come in contact with. This guy was talking about free energy. Uh, he was talking loudly in a big Southern accent. And as I started to look into his story, you know, this was a backwoods guy who, who fought some pretty heavy government powers, but ended up then getting the support of pretty heavy government powers. And, and Johnny Carson and Anyway, it was, it was a, um, it's a story that's pretty thrilling to start sharing it with people because it's a wild story uh, that people generally say, why haven't I heard of this before? This is a guy who did 16 Minutes on Carson and rented out the New Orleans Superdome talking about free energy, and he kind of faded into the past, and I guess our film you know, attempts to uh, resurrect the story. So you had a pretty interesting tale in, in the Q&A at Doc NYC where you told, like, how, what was your intro, your initial entry point into finding out about this guy? You know, we were fans of 
um, conspiracy shows. You know, my brothers, I have two older brothers, and we'd sit around and we'd watch, we'd order VHS tapes, like Richard Hoagland did the Monuments of Mars, and they had the same geometry of the, the you know, the you know, pyramids in Egypt. And we just loved this stuff. We were, uh, uh, you know, late teens, early 20s. And one of the tapes we ordered was a conspiracy tape from A&E uh, with a program called uh, Conspiracies, about three different topics. And it had a, a five-minute segment on this guy, Newman with real spooky music. And, you know, I, I look back at that footage now and I don't know what grabbed me. It's not that compelling, but there was something in it that just got me and, and got us to start looking deeper and deeper into it. So it's amazing how a little piece of media, uh, if it's out there for a little while, you just never know, uh, uh, you know, kind of what it's going to pick up. So Joe Newman is a, is a really kind of larger-than-life presence in this film. You know, he's an ex-boxer. He's extremely smart. He's extremely confident, probably verging beyond confident. What was uh, your approach to trying to bring the vibrancy of who he was onto the screen? You know, it was, it, it was actually a tricky process um, because we spend the first two-thirds of the movie in the 1980s with a very conservative Joe Newman, um, the most captivating uh, uh, part of knowing Joe is is knowing him, you know, how, how he was as an older guy. He was this wild this kind of Doc Brown from Back to the Future with, uh, uh, you know, with a real uh, uh, slick tongue. And, you know, you kind of meld Doc Brown and Ross Perot and you kind of get this rhetoric coming out of him all day. And it's, it's absolutely captivating because there's a great deal of wisdom in what he was saying. But we couldn't use that because we wanted to tell an old story and we didn't want to reveal if he was even around or not until we got to the third act. So it was a very careful process of kind of, you know, trying to understand this guy through archival footage as we watch him fight the patent office, as we watch him get 11 congressmen to write bills for him, as we watch him on the Johnny Carson show, and, and we watch him at podiums, at big stadiums. And, and it wasn't showing us enough about him. You know, we knew that he was a fighter, and, and that was interesting to watch from a plot perspective. So we started to really look into his childhood and what formed him. He was a, an orphan. He had a mother, but his mother put him in an orphanage when he was uh, seven years old during the Depression. And he lived there for a couple of years with his older brother, and they bonded with his older brother. And Joe became quite mischievous and stole candy and things of that, and it's how he'd put it. Um, and his older brother died shortly after that. And we found that it really formed the guy that eventually became this extremely difficult, cantankerous guy. So we looked back and started animating that stuff and sort of, you know, put, weaving that into uh, this amazing David and Goliath story that eventually turned into, you know, a bit of a conspiracy. While he's standing in front of John Glenn at the Senate screaming, uh, it fresh in our mind is the formative experiences of this person. So when we finally meet him in the third act, um, which is really a, a quite a shocking surprise to meet a guy like this in the way we meet him, we have some you know, understanding and pathos of where he came from and how he got there. So we took a pretty circuitous route to it. We felt pretty restricted. And we use his voice a lot, uh, telling stories about his life. But um, you know, if you don't want to reveal certain things, uh, you, you have to take those routes. Yeah, and I was actually surprised somewhat just to see him show up on the screen. I mean, I was totally engrossed in the story, the way you were telling it. And then, you know, I I knew that there was the possibility he would pop in there, but I, I guess I didn't expect to see him pop in the way he did. To go backwards, though, a little bit, um, as, you're as you're building up the story, one thing that really stuck out to me about the film is you have all these contemporaries of his 
who you are talking to in the present, fellow engineers, including some scientists who kind of believe and take up his cause. And they, they all have this ability to like actually absolutely marvel at the things he was doing and marvel at his personality. But then there are other moments where you can just see they're just shaking their head because they kind of know where this story is headed and kind of where his personality is going to end up. Um, how did you, were all those people, the people that were on his periphery, were they uh, glad and happy to be involved in this film? Did they think it was a story that needed to be told? You know, anybody that was involved with Joe Newman and his motor fell in love with it and him and the cause. I mean, if this really is what it promises to be, an end to oil, coal, and nuclear power, and coming out of a garage and getting to be part of that, everyone's enamored of it. They were involved and they were there and they came to believe that it worked. And these are pretty serious engineers and physicists. Uh, so yeah, they were thrilled to be involved. They wanted to promote this motor in any way they could. But funny enough, to kind of answer your, the other side of your question, nobody wanted to talk bad about Joe. And Joe was a really difficult guy. Um, and, you know, this is a, a, a real, you know, Aristotelian tragedy in a sense of a guy who, who, you know, fought all these outside powers. And the villains are really coming from external forces like the U.S. Patent Office and the government and, and sort of small-mindedness of the scientific community. But he then becomes his own worst villain. Um, and nobody wanted to talk about that. And, I, I, you know, nobody wanted to hurt Joe and, and kind of tell the truth of it. But it was essential. And each, each person at the beginning of their interview uh, said, let's stay away from all these things. But then eventually they all got into it because there was no way to explain how this motor that everyone says works didn't get there uh, without having the person that controlled it being uh, uh, so difficult to, to you know, uh, bring to work with others. So um, now going back to him, how did you ultimately convince him to being part of the movie? Because as you, as we see a little bit, he seems like he's pretty skeptical of, you know, because of the experiences he's had. Um, when you first approached him, was he into the idea or was he skeptical about you? Uh, you know, he was always skeptical to start with. And when my brother actually met him before me, he made him stand in a parking lot for two hours and kind of quiz him. And uh, when he was, he was happy with the answers, he brought him back to his house and showed him the motor. You know, Joe always, uh, uh, you know, started, uh, you know, after he kind of approved you, he was very open-minded with you. And he always said, you know, it's, it's either going to work or it's not. It's either like grease rails or I'll never talk to you again. And um, it was quite easy to work with him and talk to him and gain access. And, you know, look, when I met him, he didn't have anything going on. This is a guy who who had 20 million eyeballs on him for a good amount of time. And he was whole up in a house in Arizona and then Texas working on a motor that he could barely afford to buy the copper for. And, you know, I came to him saying, I'd like to bring attention to your story. I think it's a fascinating story. And, uh, and I was very transparent with him saying, I've never made a movie before. And, and we're just kind of, kind of, you know, uh, put on a little show here and see what we can get going. And, um, and he liked the idea of it. You know, there was times where I, I didn't deliver results for a year as I was putting it together and he'd get quite frustrated, but he was always amenable to keep going. You know, Joe had deep programs, I think, that caused him to be really uncomfortable with situations that would have led to his success. We bring him an investor in the film and he gets offered, you know, uh, the, the world and he just you know, kind of can't digest the ideas, but he didn't want to be that guy. You know, he, he, we see him early in the film as an open sharing guy. You know, early in the film, we're in Loosedale, Mississippi, 
and he opens the doors to his garage and he invites in a dozen scientists and we're there for that. And as you said, you know, we have this sort of time machine. We're with these scientists in that garage and then we're with them 30 years later in interviews looking back. And it was wonderful. And his wife's cooking dinner. So uh, uh, he was always that guy in the beginning. And, but he, he would quickly morph into a bit of a paranoid person as you offered him opportunities or tried to get, you know, sort of closer to the source of, of what I think he came to consider his child. Did, towards the tail end of making the movie, was he aware of the direction you were going with it? Were you sharing footage with him, or were you, was your plan to wait until you were done? You know, I, he hadn't seen anything, um, but I, I'd always shared with him what the movie was about. Um, you know, I said the first two acts were going to tell what happened to you, because this guy had a journey like no other. What happened to him in the 80s is absolutely compelling and fascinating, you know, uh, renting out convention centers, speaking to thousands of people, having celebrities at his side. Um, And then I, for the third act, I wanted him to get on board with taking this motor out to the public. And we lined up a lot of opportunities with him, with good financiers and scientists. Um, And so he kind of derailed the third act in a different direction and created it in front of us. And the cameras were just rolling. So, you know, he, he saw it happen as I saw it happen. There was no, my decision was to help him get this motor out and document the process. That didn't end up happening during the course of the film. So he really created the plot as we were filming. It wasn't something that I had decided on and tried to create. Did you have any hesitancy about, you know, like you say, the first two thirds of the film are really you kind of telling his story in a pure journalistic style. But when you make that decision to like, hey, let's see if we can get this thing in front of other people who might kind of change the final outcome for him. Did you have any hesitancy about kind of crossing that line? Uh, it's a great question. Yeah, I, I really did. Um, I mean, I enter the film in the third act is what you're referring to. Um, and you hear my voice a couple of times throughout the film asking questions, but my initial goal was to tell the story through straight reportage and to never feel the narrator. Uh, and you know, it, it just wasn't coming together. Uh, we needed a third act. And, uh, you know, had Joe put a deal together and launched this motor, potentially I wouldn't have entered the story. But we needed someone to sit down with Joe and ask him, why isn't this out? You were on the Johnny Carson show, I say to him. You rented out the New Orleans Superdome. You had several working models. You had 11 congressmen write bills for you what's the plan? Why isn't this out? And there wasn't really a character in the film who was going to confront that question. And if the answer to that question was that, you know, this guy has become a saboteur, he's the only person to ask it to. You can't really tell that through uh, recreations and vignettes around him without, I think, getting into a sort of really cheesy territory. And so, you know, as I was filming, it was constantly a debate. I mean, as I asked questions, the people being interviewed, I'd be really careful to not step on their lines, knowing that I wasn't going to be in the film. And, and you know, that all changed. I think the film's better for it, but it's an interesting step. When you put yourself in a movie, I think you have to acknowledge that you're departing from the format that you're telling that story and you're going into a very new uh, perspective and point of view that you're asking the audience to get on board with. So luckily we had a great editor who, who knew how to kind of bring my voice in at a certain point and and then, you know, introduced me to the story in a way where Joe's showing me the motor in a storage shed in, in North Texas. And, and all of a sudden, the, the movie shifted and we accepted it. But I think that the editor did it with some elegance is why 
it worked versus being just you know you know such a departure from what we were watching at that point. Do you ultimately view this as more of a character story or more of a tale of, you know, the product that he was attempting to build? Uh, It's a character story. I don't think there's any way to tell the Joe Newman story without it becoming a character story. You know, Garland Robinette, the reporter who we feature in the movie, who's a fascinating guy. He was the voice of Katrina uh, when Katrina hit New Orleans. He was the only guy who stayed on the air and his voice got heard around the world. Uh, He said to me, you know, I, I've met three sitting presidents, and, and Joe Newman's by far the most interesting person I've ever met. I, I feel the same way. He he had this technology that was so wild, but his personality was so interesting. So you just couldn't take your eyes off of him. He was so charming and interesting and such a car wreck. Um, and so it, it absolutely became a character story, which, look, in a sense is sad because, uh, uh, you know, there there is, if there's a reason for, uh, a topic like this is to talk about earth-changing technologies and talk about, you know, ways to in global warming and really be on that topic. Um, but a lot of guys are making films on that kind of stuff. And potentially, you know, making a character piece about this guy will bring awareness to this topic and, and other people will, will carry the torch. You know, I'm actually getting a lot of calls from guys making Newman Motors. And a few different people have sent me videos of motors that they've created in their garages that are putting out more energy than they're using. I haven't gone and tested them, and I'm, I wouldn't necessarily even know how to. Uh, I'm getting calls from high school students who want to see Joe Newman's science, and I'm sending them, you know, excerpts of his book for them to study. So, you know, potentially we, we, we by telling this character story, light a spark. Absolutely. So why don't you tell me, um, do you have plans for the film? What's, what's the path you see it riding down now? Well, you know, it's my first time making the movie, and I was lucky enough to hook up with some people who have, have you know, put me uh, um, in a good circle in terms of documentary films. You know, making a documentary film, it's, it's you know, like investing in Broadway. <laughs> you know, you just, you take a flyer on it and you see what happens. Um, so the producers of my film, the executive producers, made a movie called Blackfish. Uh, which had, uh, you know, it, it was seen widely and had a really strong effect in the world, particularly uh, as it relates to SeaWorld. And they had worked with sales agents in the past, and I called Summerine. And Summerine are these wonderful sales agents and documentaries who give me access to every first-tier distribution network in terms of having them consider my film. And they're a company that would stay with my film, uh, uh, you know, throughout the sales process. So there's a lot of markets and a lot of places to put it, and we're right in the middle of it. And the film festival is a wonderful place to launch it, and we're now on the desk of, of you know, 30 different folks, and, and there's some interest out there, and, and we're just letting that trickle in over the next week or two. And I think that the future of this story is in a feature movie with an actor about Joe. I think his story is wonderful. So I'm, I'm putting together the life rights on him. And, and, you know, once again, the motor is the most interesting thing here. So there's a few guys working on it. And um, the investor that we meet in the film who, who really wanted to be a part of it is, is still on board to be a part of it. And I don't know if that's something that I would be a part of, but I, I think it could be the most interesting development um, from bringing this topic back up is actually putting people together to go and create a motor company. And, but for my part, uh, we're looking to get the film distributed and then potentially go on and, and make a narrative feature film, you know, remake of the documentary. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye out that. Um, it would be my perception that when this thing gets in the marketplace, you're going to have a very large response to it. 
So um, we want to thank John Fox for spending a little time on the documentary podcast. And uh, please keep an eye out for Newman when it eventually is out there for everyone to be seeing it. Great talking to you, Steve. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a good one. Well, that wraps up episode 16 of the documentary podcast. We'd like to thank all the directors that took the time out to talk to us, as well as the folks at Doc NYC that helped Steve navigate the festival. Absolutely. Until next time, I'm Kath Kieliszewski. And I am Steve Byrne. You've been listening to The Documentary Podcast. It is co-hosted and co-produced by Steve Byrne and Kathy Kieliszewski and edited by Kathy Kieliszewski. I am Steve Byrne. I am the arts and entertainment editor at the Detroit Free Press and also the executive director of Free Film Festival. Kathy is the director of photo and video at the Free Press and the artistic director of Free Film Festival. You can find us on iTunes and on our website, freepfilmfestival.com, as well as follow us on Twitter at freep underscore film underscore fest and on Facebook at facebook.com slash freepfilmfestival. Music by Killer Tracks with the song Detroit Rhythm by Chris Lang and Eric Cunningham. Mm-hmm.